Welcome to the AT Parenting Survival Podcast, where you get help and guidance through the chaos of parenting a child with anxiety or OCD. This show is for educational purposes and is not intended to replace the guidance of a qualified professional. Here's your host, child therapist, Natasha Daniels. Well, hello there, and welcome to another episode of the AT Parenting Survival Podcast. Um, today, I had the pleasure of interviewing Jason Adam Katzenstein. He is a well-known cartoonist and writer. Uh, he has appeared in the New Yorker, New York Times, Mad Magazine, and on Cartoon Network. And he is talking to me about his most recent book, which is Everything is an Emergency. It's a graphic novel about kind of his journey through OCD and through treatment. And it is fantastic. I instantly fell in love with it when I started reading it because I never know how to reach some of these teenagers who, you know, they don't want to talk about OCD. They definitely don't want to read a book on OCD. And maybe they don't even believe me that exposures and ERP and the type of things that I'm trying to teach them could be helpful. And this is a perfect easy read because it's a graphic novel. The art is good. It's funny. It's realistic um, because it's based on his life. So um, I had the pleasure of talking to Jason more about what inspired him to write the book and also what the book entails and how to help kids who are struggling with this. So without further ado, here is my interview with Jason. All right. Well, I want to welcome Jason to the show. Thank you so much for coming on. I really appreciate it. Thank you for having me. Yeah. I loved your book. So you wrote Everything is an Emergency, and it's a graphic novel. Um, We're going to dive into that. I want to talk about what the book is about and what inspired you. But before we get started, for those that don't know you, if you can introduce yourself and spend some time telling them who you are, that'd be great. Yeah. I'm Jason Adam Katzenstein. By day, I'm a New Yorker cartoonist. I also write for children's television, and I write comedy for The New Yorker and for Mad Magazine. And I teach a class on writing and drawing comics at Wesleyan University. And I am the author of Everything is an Emergency, which is a book of personal stories about my experiences with obsessive compulsive disorder. Yeah, some really impressive work. Uh, And the OCD community is really lucky that you took some time out of all that impressive work to supply something for the OCD world, which I, you know, I thank you for having my own kids with OCD and working with so many kids with OCD. But this really fills the gap to me where there's plenty of books for kids, young kids and elementary school kids on helping them with OCD. And there's tons of adult books for OCD. But I know as a therapist myself, I just didn't know where to help the kids who don't want to read a book who have OCD and they're in their teens and they don't want to do ERP. They don't want to do any of the treatment. We're going to get into that. Now this is going to be recommended reading. So thanks for that. But before we go into that, all about me, can you give people a synopsis of what everything is an emergency is about? Yeah. So everything is an emergency traces my relationship to my OCD and also my creativity. And it's a bunch of stories that are sort of a map that traced my experience from when I was a little kid before I understood what was really going on through when I was diagnosed when I was 15 years old and my, you know, rejection of ERP and medication and the tactics that I attempted to try and cope with this stuff and traces that journey through what felt to me like a breaking point where the 
compulsive behavior and panic attacks were really encroaching upon my everyday life to the point where I had no more excuse but to do the ERP work and to try out medication. So it's a recovery story. And it's also a story about how I learned to think about recovery differently and about my creativity differently and about OCD differently. Yeah, and it's so well done because it really does address a lot of those unhealthy coping mechanisms. And, you know, it doesn't paint this like just beautiful, idyllic story of, you know, I have OCD and then I get help and then I get better. It's real. And I think it will really speak to teenagers and young adults or anyone really with OCD beyond that age to understand that there's a process. And I like that because I, and the artwork is really good and helps visualize, I think, the struggle. So even for someone who doesn't read, which are most of the kids I work with, you know, the teenagers, this is something they can look at and get through in a sitting. Like I read this in a sitting, you know, I sat there and it was entertaining and it was interesting to go through. So what prompted you to create it? I started making this book as I started to, in earnest, really do an intense round of ERP and when I started taking medication. And so the book for me began as a mechanism to hold myself accountable to that work because ERP is scary and can feel bad and it's easy to give up and I had a history of giving up. And so I wanted to remind myself why I was doing this and to tell the story of why I was doing it. And making comics has always been comforting for me. So I wanted to start making these comics about the work that I was doing in order to, here's a good way to put it. I've had trouble historically taking my mental health seriously, but I've taken my art seriously. I've taken comics seriously. And the thought was if I made comics about working on my mental health, that I might take it more seriously. And strangely, that kind of worked. Yeah, that makes sense. You know, marry them together and then there'll be some commitment there. Yeah, that makes sense. I had multiple points where I wanted to give up or I wanted to not do the newest exposure. And the only thing motivating me was this is going to be a very boring book if you keep sliding back into old bad habits. Yeah. So it kind of holds you accountable, which I totally get with my own anxiety, like, you know, being an advocate and trying to help people, it holds me accountable too, like to, to work on my own stuff so that I'm not being a hypocrite. (laughs) So yeah, I love that you tied your art with your mental health. So for those that don't understand what ERP is, could you give a little synopsis? You explained it so well in the book too. I like the analogy of the bear and the visual was really good. Oh, thank you. Yeah. Exposure and response prevention therapy is, so OCD is a loop. You have an obsessive thought and you want that thought to stop. And the OCD brain finds out that you can perform certain compulsions to make a thought stop. So for instance, my shoe is dirty. You think that over and over. And maybe if you wash your shoe, you stop thinking that thought. And so that will, in the short term, stop the obsession. But in the longer term, it'll solidify this bond between the obsession and compulsion. And you'll start thinking, I need to perform this compulsion. What ERP does is you deliberately expose yourself to the things that would trigger that alarm response in your brain. And then you deliberately refrain from doing the response that would usually make you feel better in the moment. And so it's sort of doing the OCD loop in reverse to teach your brain that you don't actually have to wash or check or reassure when you have that nagging thought in your head. 
and you do that thing over and over again. So for me with contamination, touch my shoe, touch my face seven to 10 times a day. And initially that feels really terrifying, but as I do it more and more and acclimate my brain to the fact that this is actually not as dangerous as it feels, then I teach myself a new habit. Yeah, that's a great way to explain it. So you were reluctant to do ERP like most of the kids that I see. <laughs> mm-hmm. What would you say to someone who's like watching maybe on YouTube, you know, who's a teenager, young adult, who doesn't want to do exposures or doesn't see how that's going to help? I think that one thing that I've appreciated is when people don't try and lie to me about it being difficult or scary, because I think that ERP work is very difficult and scary. And the other thing is that in the beginning, it's an act of faith you know, because you really, really feel like this dangerous thing is real. And you really, really don't want to do the exposure. But there's something really euphoric about doing that first one, or the first few, and then realizing a thing that you made a rule against doing, a thing that you thought you could never do, you can actually do. And it makes you feel so powerful. And that can be a good motivating force to continue doing the work. But to get over that first hump, you kind of just need to go on trust. And that's where having an OCD community comes in a lot of handy because you can talk to people who have been through this and can go, I was where you were. And so what I would say to people watching is I was very reticent to do this work and I started and stopped a bunch of times, but it has been one of the most helpful things that I could possibly do. And I got out of a really deep hole by doing ERP work. And if you just take that leap of faith in the beginning and get over that first hurdle, there's also little rewards along the way. Yeah. And and I like in, in your book, it's not like instant success. You know, it's, it was like slowly and you were like waiting for, you know, to see the progress. And then it was like, almost like, oh yeah, I didn't have to do that compulsion, like that awareness. And I, I think that's realistic. And so it's, it's portrayed in a really realistic way. And uh, yeah, I agree. I always say to to people, it's like jumping off a cliff and just trusting that your parachute's going to pop out. Like mm-hmm. you don't know, but you hope that it will. You're not going to land there, and but that's what happens. But it is really, really scary. It's a decision. It's an active decision, and you need to decide that against the alarm bell going off in my brain, I'm going to trust myself and the people in my life who tell me I'll be okay. Mm-hmm. Yep, exactly. So for parents out there there's a lot of parents listening on the podcast. What would you advise parents on how to help a kid? And I'm thinking more like teenagers where they don't want to work on it. They don't want to talk about it. They don't want to believe that they have any issues. They just want to be left alone. Well, I'm trying to now invert my experience and think about my family taking care of me. I think it's really difficult, especially because so much of it is invisible. And in addition to the actual obsessions and the compulsions, there's also this attendant sense of shame or embarrassment a lot of the time. I mean, I know that I had that, like what kind of person thinks these things, what kind of person does these things. And so it's completely understandable to me why a teenager would not want to talk about this, especially when you're, you know, your job as a teenager is to not be noticed and to fly under the radar as much as possible, or it can feel that way. And so you don't want to do anything that makes you strange necessarily. I think that finding a little bit of daylight between a kid's identity and their OCD can be really helpful. Like to stress, you are not your OCD. And I wonder how that translates into interactions between parents and kids. I mean, you can feel empathy for your kid when you know what's going on 
in their brain, even if you don't know like the content of it at any given moment, if you know, okay, my kid has OCD and so they're turning something over and it's like hitting the same wall over and over again, what kind of support can I lend them? Sometimes it's like a hug and ice cream. I mean, something that I've realized about attending my own anxiety more generally is that we get so lost in the content of the thing, like the plot of it. What is the exact specific worry? But with OCD, it's so malleable. The worry can just become so many different things. And it might be more productive to focus on what kind of care and support can I give to help my kid deal with whatever the thing itself is that they're dealing with. Because no matter what you're dealing with, a hug and ice cream is nice. <laughs> that is true. I'm not going to argue with that. Unless you have emotional contamination, you don't want the hug. But otherwise, yeah, it's very nice. And I think you're right. I think a lot of times as parents, we get so anxious that we want to, we want to hyper-focus on the theme. We want to hyper-focus on the thought. And we don't build that communication and that trust that we need in order for kids to open up and just talk about their stuff in general. And especially where it's developmentally appropriate for a teenager to like not want to talk to their parent or to be a little closed off, it makes it a little bit trickier. So just working on that foundation is really mm-hmm. important. I yeah. wonder, I have a question for you, which is, I mean, I know that my parents often wanted to perform my compulsions for me because they wanted to keep me from feeling super stressed out or super upset. And so when they did know that something was a theme of mine, they would, you know, like reassure me or like touch the thing for me. Or, you know, I know that that's like an intuitive kind of support that can sometimes be more harmful than helpful, even if it's helpful in the short term. But I wonder what you say to parents who want to perform their kids' compulsions. Yeah, we talk about that a lot on this podcast. And I always tell parents that they're metaphorically the same because they really are with kids. You know, the compulsions are going to be primarily the parent completing the loop, whether it's reassurance or it's avoidance and and getting them to really see that they're growing those neural pathways. Sometimes when I get out my my neurons, you know, and I draw how they're growing bigger, that really hammers it home. You know, that I don't really want to grow those neural pathways and there are, there are kind and empathetic ways to wean our kids off of those things, but it's hard. It's hard as a parent to not do that. Yeah. I mean, with my partner, I've learned, you know, cause this is my intimate and close quarters relationship now is me and my girlfriend. And I'm trying to get better at asking her specifically for kinds of support that are helpful. And she's also, I mean, as somebody who's dated somebody with OCD for a while now, she's learning how to give me support without indulging those compulsions or reinforcing those compulsions. And that's difficult work. Yeah. How does she do that? Instead of trying to rationalize with me why something is not actually going to be as harmful as I thought it is, she identifies it as OCD. She'll say, this sounds like an OCD thought. And I'm not going to argue with the thought, but I'm just going to point out that it's OCD. Yeah. And that's a great way for parents to do it too. You know, I think a lot of times parents think that they're going to be ignoring their kid or not meeting their emotional needs and saying, you know, I always have them name it, you know, so not, it sounds like Bob's trying to talk to me, you know, instead of you and I love you. I don't love Bob. And so I'm not going to answer that for Bob. You know, like you can be creative with your, with your language or people Mm -hmm. who don't want to name it you know, just calling it out and saying it is OCD can be really helpful and not completing that loop. 
So if you had to go back in time, this is a weird question, but if you had to go and talk to your younger self, because that's kind of what I got like from your book, it was like going back and it's like a memoir, it's a graphic novel memoir. What advice would you give your younger self? That really did turn into this project. I'm glad that you thought so while reading it because while I did start it to hold myself accountable, I realized as I kept making it that I was just making the book I wish I had when I was diagnosed because the absence that I feel in the world of OCD literature is something that is, I don't want to, you know, I don't want to call this out and then I'm just overlooking a lot of books that do exist on this. So forgive me. (laughs) And also if you know of any books or anybody watching the watching the channel or listening knows I'm very interested. But if you're 15 years old and you get this diagnosis and you're very scared, like to put myself in my 15 year old shoes, I was like, okay, this never goes away. That's very scary. I will always be sick. I will never be well. And I was very scared. And the accounts of OCD that I was reading were very scary to me, especially because a lot of case studies and a lot of testimonials are about pretty extreme examples. And so I wasn't sure what my OCD would morph into. I was feeling pretty defeated about working with it. I was like, what's the point if it's never going to go away? So a big lesson that I've learned in the 14 years since I was diagnosed is that It might never go away, but it also doesn't have to be a huge part of my day. It can be a little blip that I acknowledge. And there can be periods in my life where it can flare up a bit and other periods where it can just be this thing about me. And um, that recovery doesn't mean that it's completely gone, but that tending to it doesn't mean that it's completely ruining my life. These are things that were hard to see when I was just so scared of this big diagnosis, right? And so I wish that I had this book so I could read about somebody who, you know, for whom sometimes it was worse than other times and things that worked and things that didn't work. Yeah, I do see a lot of teenagers who, the younger kids aren't nearly as as much like this, but definitely the teenagers and the young adults, but I don't work with adults, but the teenagers have this defeatist attitude a lot of the time. I either see an overzealous teenager who is just like, let's just crush this thing. Um, but they're normally perfectionistic. <laughs> so that's part of their, part of their, mm-hmm. what's going on over there. But then I have a lot of teenage boys, I would say, especially who are, they're defeated before they even started. They feel depressed. They feel hopeless. They feel like um, they have this just huge disorder that no matter what I say, it's not going to help. And they're not going to read books. And there are a lot of books out there. And there are a lot of books for teens too on OCD. I think they speak more to that um, overzealous kid that I work with. And I will assign, you know, reading assignments for that overzealous kid versus that disgruntled teenage boy who's like, don't throw a book at me. And I'm not even going to insult him, insult him to throw a book at him because I know I'm setting him up for failure. I'm not going to have this, like get some dust in your room and make you feel bad. But yeah. That, that's where this does fill the gap because there's OCD Daniel, which is for younger kids, which is kind of like a little bit of like a graphic novel, but for much younger kids, this really fills a gap that I don't, I don't know of any book. Um, and I'm pretty clued into books, but I may be wrong. So there's, there's a disclaimer there, but it is a book that I could throw at a kid who is feeling overwhelmed, feeling defeated, um, doesn't want to read a book, doesn't want to hear about process or 
about act or about um, skill building. Like they don't want any of that kind of language. They want a graphic novel. At first when I was reading it, I was like, oh, this is really good for younger kids. I don't know why he's marketing it to like teens and adults. And then as it got on, <laughs> you know, mm-hmm. the language was a little, you know, you use some cuss words. But then as the content got a little bit more deep too, I thought, no, this is perfect for teens and young adults and adults in general. So yeah, I do feel like that it, it fills in that gap and it offers hope in a way that I know I can't because I'm just a therapist. And so it's a really good tool for parents and for therapists where the kid's looking at you like, you don't know what you're talking about. You know, you, you're not going through what I'm going through. And your book just resonates exactly probably a lot of what they're feeling as well. And a lot of what they might be feeling into adulthood, which could help them avoid some of those traps of, you know, coping with other means that aren't going to be helpful for them. Thanks. Definitely a gift. Yeah, I definitely use a 19-year-old's tactics for how to deal with stuff. Also, for any teenagers watching, the book does have jokes. Like, it, it, it is a funny book. So I hope it doesn't feel like homework. It didn't feel I, like homework to make. I found it really entertaining. Sometimes, to be honest, when I'm interviewing someone and I want to read their book beforehand because I'm that kind of person, it feels like homework for me where I'm like, oh my gosh, I'm interviewing someone next week. I got to read their book before I talk to them. This was a joy. Like I was like, oh, I got to go back oh, to thank that. Thank you. Really good. It was a joy. It's funny. The art is good. I have a 16-year-old daughter who wants to be an illustrator. And I was telling her last night, I'm like, look at his book and I'm going to talk to him tomorrow. <laughs> and she was like, whoa, that's super cool. So I think even for a lot of teenagers want to use their art to express their mental health. And this is just such a really good example of how to do that. So hopefully Thank it'll you. motivate kids too, you know, to, to channel that, channel their struggles into, into their artwork as well. That I highly recommend. That's always been really edifying for me. How would you recommend that? Do you have any tips on that as far as kind of using art as an outlet or in a way to kind of work through their stuff? Well, I think that art is a thing that's allowed to be just for you or for the world. It can be a bridge. It can be a bridge for you to communicate things that might be intangible to communicate in conversation. It also is a way to wrestle with and try to make sense of things in a way where the stakes aren't, you have to say this in a perfectly logical way, or you have to say this so that X, Y, or Z person can understand. Whether it's a painting or a song or a poem, there's this engagement with things that are otherwise invisible or or hard to pin down into language or description. And I think that that's a really good place to meet some of these obsessive compulsive thoughts, these obsessive thoughts and these compulsive behaviors, I should say. It's um, for me, even when I didn't understand what was going on, when I tried to make paintings about it, it felt like I was meeting this thing in a place where we could at least speak to each other, me and my OCD. Yeah, I love that. And, and it could be comical. And I think that your art kind of illustrates that, that you could you can mock your OCD or you can mock the situation. And that's actually very therapeutic. And it's, it's an exposure in and of itself that a yeah. lot of people, and you use that in your book, you talk about kind of using your art as an exposure, drawing the worst case scenario. And, and so combining your art and, you know, a lot of times people are saying journal, you don't have to journal, you can sketch, you can do so many different ways to express yourself. And like you said, it doesn't have to be for the world. If you don't want it to be, it can be for you and it can be very healing. Yeah. 
But also, I mean, my parents read this book and they were like, that's what it felt like. And I thought that I'd done a pretty good job of describing things. And also they were there for a lot of it. Yeah. But I think that there's so much that you can't really convey. And I've always felt most comfortable telling stories in words and pictures. And so this book, which, you know, has bears turning into snails and talking furniture, et cetera, et cetera, was the most realistic way I could find to tell the story of about what was going on in my brain. And it actually made some things clear to people in my life in a way that I couldn't if I just tried to describe it. And so you can make art that you want to keep in a drawer or do just for yourself. And art might also be a really good way to synopsize something that's going on with you when other things fail. That's a good point. Yeah. I think sometimes the best way to understand how someone feels is, is more through their art. And even in your book, there really aren't that many words, but you come away because of all the images and the, the pictures with a I felt like even a better sense of what you went through than if you'd written, you know, a huge book on it that was like, you know, single spaced. So very powerful. So where can people find you? I know your book, Everything is an Emergency is probably everywhere. You know, it's on Amazon. I'll leave links in the show notes so people can can get it. I highly recommend it. I'm actually going to send this to a lot of my male clients. <laughs> even ones I don't work with anymore. Hopefully that won't be inappropriate. I'm going to just send it to them as a gift because I think it's that good. So I thank you. Where can people learn more about you? Well, I have an Instagram account where I post mostly single panel cartoons. And that is at J period, A period, K period, and then an underscore. The underscores are important. And I have a Twitter account, which is at Jason Adam K. And I'm about to be an editor at a new independent comic site that is called Arai, which is part of a website bundle called The Brick House. We're fundraising right now, but I'm so excited because I'm going to publish all of these cartoonists on that page. So that's the thing that I've been up to lately. But if you want to, you know, if you want to hear from me via my work, Instagram is probably best. Okay. So people should follow you on Instagram. Yeah. Thank you for coming on. I really appreciate it. And thanks for adding this book to um, the OCD resources available. I appreciate it. Oh, thank you for reading it. Thank you for having me. And thank you for wanting to talk about it. Well, I hope you found that interview interesting. Go check out his book. Everything is emergency. It is so good. And if you have a teenager or young adult in your house, or even if you know an adult with OCD, this is definitely a really, really good read. So I hope that you are finding the podcast helpful. And if you are enjoying it, please don't forget to hit a star on iTunes or wherever you consume your podcasts. If you have a few extra seconds and can leave a review, I greatly appreciate that because that really helps other parents know that there's value in this show. And I'm constantly trying to find resources and support to bring to you so that I open up your eyes and world to new and awesome things that can help your family dealing with OCD. So I hope that you find the sparkle in everything you do. And I'll talk to you again next Tuesday. Take care. Thank you for listening to the AT Parenting Survival Podcast. To get additional support raising a child with anxiety or OCD, visit Natasha's online school of on-demand classes at atparentingsurvivalschool.com. 